0: Welcome to Future Extraordinaire. I'm Amit Mira, President of Asia Pacific and Japan and Global Digital Cities with Dell Technologies.
1: And I'm Daniel Margie VP of Pre-Sales, also with
0: Dell Technologies. We are optimists, we love technology, and we believe future is amazing. We are helping to uncover the opportunities and possibilities, the skill and talent that are needed, and the progress that we can drive with the technology, data, and the indomitable human spirit. And with industry
1: leaders, subject matter experts, and influencers joining us as guests, we will deep dive into the latest, coolest technologies, discuss new realities, the impact on Asia-Pacific region, and provide refreshing perspectives. We want
0: a future that is full of hope, that is fair and just, a future that is extraordinary. Welcome to another episode of Future Extraordinaire, With me, Amit Mira, and my co-host, Danielle Marchi. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining the show again. The Human Genome Project, initiated in 1990, was completed in 2003 at an estimated cost of U.S. $2.7 billion, with the collaborative efforts of institutions and laboratories in countries including the U.S., U.K., Japan, China, Germany, and France. Genomic technology has made major impact in the fields of medicine, biotechnology, life sciences, diseases, and viruses, as, so, as we will soon learn more about. Danny and I are excited to have with us for this episode, for this podcast a dreamer, a doer, and an expert in the field of genomics. Yop Delic, the lead bioinformatics and genomics for the Institute of Environmental Science and Research Limited, and um, you know we're welcome to have him today. We'll we'll have him a little bit talk about himself, but just to give his intro, Yop um, is uh, passionate about work on research questions which contribute to people's understanding of biology within areas where findings can have a direct impact on human health. So which is where which is makes him very unique. It's not just a classic researcher. He is really trying to make us all get better and i'm so excited to talk to him today just because my daughter is planning on pursuing something in genomics and it's it's is fantastic that now um, i get to actually talk to him get to know him a bit better he's an experienced researcher working on omics so that is the branches of science known informally as as the the where the names and suffix omics using computational methods so computational methods applied into biology so that's fantastic, and then previously he has coordinated large-scale compute um, clusters um, as well um, within the Center of Molecular Medicine. Um, and uh, he is in the PhD. He 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 investigated the uh, the role of uh, you know the novel mutations and their role in human development diseases. So we're going to get to talk a lot about him uh, and what he's doing and what he's doing now. But um, why don't we have him? Uh, to talk a little bit about his job and what he's interested in. So first of all, Yup, uh, uh, welcome.
2: Hi, Amit. Thank you for having me on.
0: Great. So what does a lead bioinformatics and genomics do? Tell us a little bit about your job.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, So it can be quite a diverse job. uh, But what it mainly means is that I'm tasked with trying to figure out how we can have genomics have the biggest impact um, to improve people's health. Um, So when it comes to the virus, it's about understanding how it is coming into the country. Or when it comes to medicine, it's about what can we learn from a person's genome, how we might better treat them. Um, So that's the the large type of brief that I've been given. Um, But what that means on a day-to-day basis is that you work with people that are in the hospitals, you work with people that are in the lab doing these experiments, but that you also work with IT specialists on how to process that data and also present that in a meaningful way. So it's quite multidisciplinary in that way.
1: And and I'm curious, to Amit's point earlier, how did you get started in this field? Like, why did you say, hey, this is the field I'm going to go into and I'm going to build a career out of this?
2: Yeah. So um, I didn't necessarily plan on making a career, but the, there were two things that I, as a as a young person, uh, found really intriguing, and they were biology and computers. Um, biology is probably partially because my parents always were out and about in nature with me, and I found it fascinating how things worked, or what kind of animals were living in a certain area, and then to try to find them, and, and when I was much smaller, catch them. Um, but as you grow older, you, you find that there's these magnificent things going on on a cellular level in the DNA and the RNA Um, and when I was growing up the field of bioinformatics in the Netherlands was just starting as as something that you could study and for me that combined those two things computers and biology so I thought well let's let's go explore that and let's see where it takes me and I've now ended up in New Zealand um, sequencing viruses.
0: Well, there you go. That's kind of another interesting piece. I mean, you are from Netherlands, and now you're in New Zealand, and um, so uh, how? What? What brought you from um, all the way from other side of the world to this side of the world?
2: Yeah. Well, you you touched upon it nicely. There, Ahmad, is that it's on the other side of the, the world. One um, of my parents and and our and. My, my other sibling, um, they said to us, um, when you finish your studies, you can pick a country anywhere, and you'll go there on holidays as a reward for um, putting in the effort and um, and persevering. Uh, that was the thought behind it. And um, I was still fairly young, but I had a globe, um, as any self-respecting young person does. Um, and I literally got that globe out and I went like, so where's the Netherlands? And then I turned the globe around and I said, well, what's on the other side? And that was right in between Australia and New Zealand. And I thought New Zealand sounded much more interesting. Um, But then as as a child, I had decided that that was going to be the place that I wanted to visit. And as you grow a bit older and you go through your studies, you actually figure out that New Zealand is quite an interesting country. There's very interesting animals. There's beautiful nature. So when that question actually came, when I finished my studies, where do you want to go? I still said New Zealand. And one of the things that when I got here is there is this amazing nature. But the other thing that struck me is that I had traveled quite a bit during my studies. This was a country where they were genuinely friendly and truly nice people um, in a way that you don't find very often so since that visit which was about 11 years ago New Zealand has always had a a very warm spot in my heart and when the opportunity came to um, work here and to have bring my family with me um, I had to take that chance
1: and and I'm just curious. So you've now you've gone through you've invested in your own academic uh, skills knowledge. You've relocated your family to this place filled with you know great nature, beautiful people, and and now you're doing a lot of work around genome sequencing. How did how did the two marry up? Um, you know, a, a rich background in the Netherlands around uh, investing in. Curriculum to help uh, build next generation uh, sequencers or scientists in biology and, and and how to apply that with technology. But then the work you're doing now in New Zealand, please share a little bit more around how that's how, how they're playing a part around trying to solve some of the the biggest challenges around disease around the world.
2: Yeah. So it's that's a big question there. Uh, so I'll try to unpack it. Um, so um, the thing is that what what drove me to to take up the position here in New Zealand is um, one of the things that really spoke to me is that the institute where I now work, um, they their their tagline is science for communities. Um, So in my my work previous to that, it was really focused on patients, which was very valuable to me because it was having a very direct impact. But it's also a, a small group of people that you're impacting with that. And this was an opportunity for me to think about how these technologies could have a, a wider, more societal impact rather than an individual patient. Um, so I think that that's one of the things that I really um, liked about the opportunity. And um, by actually the work that we're doing here, and especially on the pandemic, you're not just working within a country you're working internationally to try to understand a disease that is is at this moment killing thousands of people every day to try to understand that and therefore also help all the other researchers globally that are trying to combat it to come up with smarter and better ways to detect it to hopefully treat it at some point um, or even prevent it when we get to the vaccine stage so, so,
0: Job, That's that. I mean, I. There is so many areas that we can go into. I'm not even sure. But can you just can you just give our listeners some background on what does genome sequencing does? I mean, how do you really go about it? Everybody has heard about genomics and genome sequencing, but what do you do to fight a virus? How do you go about it?
2: Yep. So um, the first step in in when people ask the question, what is genome sequencing, is um, it requires a bit of biology, as you say, where you understand that all living organisms that we know about um, have genetic material in them, uh, which they copy over to their next generation, or in case of a virus, to replicate itself. And that's, that uh, genetic material contains the history of that organism, um, its ancestors, and um, those types of information are encoded within that. So that allows us to understand a bit of where something has come from or um, what has happened to it. So what we do is we have to find ways to extract that genetic material In the case of humans, that's typically DNA, but in the case of this virus, that's RNA, and that's a slightly different molecule. But we have to get that out of the organism, and then we have to read it. So typically what you do is that one of the first thing you do is you separate the genetic material of whatever you're interested in from all the other material because especially if you're talking about viruses of bacteria they live inside of humans or they live inside of plants or animals so you have to get rid of the other signal that might be there because you want to focus specifically on the pathogen in that case so there's some lab steps that we undertake to specifically look at the virus and nothing but the virus and when you've done that you can then do certain processing steps to make it ready to be read on a special machine, which we call sequencers, that then can read that material. Because these are biological molecules, just like a sugar molecule has a certain shape or size, these um, genetic molecules also have those. And that is what you then investigate and read to then be able to reconstruct the story of that organism. So in the case of a virus, uh, when it copies itself, it can make mistakes, but those mistakes are then um, kept in the genetic material of the virus. So once it has mutated and it infects someone else, that change will be present in that person as well. And that is how we can track how the virus has been spreading across the globe or more specifically within a country because those mutations tell you something about what has come before. So if you find a certain person with a very specific mutation in that genetic material of the virus, and you find it in another person as well, but you don't see it anywhere else on the globe, you might be able to say, well, I think that these two people might have been in contact with each other or with a common source. And that, of course, allows you to then go look at what that source might be to determine how they might have gotten the virus. because for a lot of the things that we do in terms of prevention, knowing where someone got infected is really important because it tells you something about where you can change containment measures or where contact tracing might not have been completely uh, efficient.
0: That, that kind of um, takes us to a, a, a different direction as well, but, you know, but I'll, I'll save the different direction for a minute. I have a follow-up question. On COVID nineteen, um, can can you tell us where things are, how they have progressed, and you know everyone look will look to is looking forward to a some sort of end to this. How far we are from that, and how I mean I still don't understand how it became as big as it became.
2: That's a very good question. Um, so the, the first. Uh, question was um, how long this is going to be here and by all the estimates of people working on vaccines, that's going to be a little while. Um, it is unprecedented the speed that some of these vaccines trials are moving at and it's, it's a testament to how badly we want to solve this problem. But we want to do it safely and we want to do it well. So that's going to take time. There are still some worries that um, a vaccine might not give you resistance for very long. Um, So that's one of the things that people are very cautious about when they're saying, how long is this going to be around? Um, This might be uh, something that you need to get multiple vaccines for, rather than the one-off that we might be used to for some other diseases. Um, To touch upon your question, how did it get? to this place uh, where it is so widespread um, there are several factors there the most important one being that is is quite a contagious virus so um, in the scientific field we call that the infective value or on average how many People a person infects when they carry the virus, and the higher that number is, the more infectious it is. Measles is an example of a very, very infectious virus that people have known that if you even have a couple of cases, it can very quickly become a very large outbreak. Um, coronavirus two or COVID nineteen is is not inf- as infectious as measles, but it's quite infectious. And the other thing that it has, which makes it um, dangerous is that not everyone shows symptoms so a lot of people might be carrying the virus without them knowing it and that is why that testing uh, widespread testing is so important because you need to know how many people have the virus in a certain area if you want to be able to make informed decisions and the other thing that I think that has played into that and that's that's the more political side of things is that there have been certain countries or regions that have not taken this virusly as seriously as the experts recommend you to take it uh, meaning that there's been reduced measures put in place to either keep the virus out or to keep it under control which means that we now have this very widespread version of the virus which means that we're now stuck with it well very early on we had the opportunity to to stamp it out globally we now only have the option to stamp it out locally. And countries like Australia and New Zealand are taking that stamp it out approach because we don't want it running around in our countries. Um, We want to keep our people safe. Uh, That is coming at uh, a cost, but we still think, and and some of the early economic modeling has actually shown that that is cheaper uh, than to let the virus run loose.
1: That's interesting, and and I think you're starting to now touch into an area of where you're starting to see new partnerships uh, develop, not just within local countries, but now globally, and the sequencing of data and the the you know finding you know scientific proof around some of these points are becoming more and more interest to governments around the world. So, are, are you able to share? How governments are partnering with organizations such as yours, and and thinking about how do they invest more into sequencing in order to solve some of these big health challenges?
2: Yeah. No. So I think that um, as you say, um, th- the governments that have taken uh, this virus quite seriously and have taken a very proactive and and um, quick and rigorous approach to try to combat it, um, that there is a huge interest to have as much data as possible, and, and sequencing data is is part of that. Um, especially um, what is interesting to note is that even some countries that didn't do full border closures, like the Netherlands and the UK, um, they still went quite heavily on sequencing. And at the moment, I believe that about 40% of all the international sequence data is coming from the UK. They have made a massive effort to do that. Um, And they might not be able to use it with the precision that we've been able to do it with our low case numbers. But they are informing uh, research into vaccines. They are informing on a higher level how this virus is spreading and how it's mutating and behaving um, through genomics, which is a an alternative technique other than contact tracing or epidemiological investigations. So it's providing a very useful and rich resource on understanding that virus. and. Um, What's interesting to see is that those countries that have historically invested in that capability and that then decided to act on this, um, that they are are doing well. They have data-informed decision-making. And while some of them might not be doing perfect, there is, of course, also limits to what you can do depending on your geographic and uh, economic ties with certain surrounding countries.
0: So I have, that leads me to a question. Why are we so stumped by viruses? You know, why, you know, this is, is, is uh, I mean, we have made such a big, I mean, such a big progress on bacterial uh, infections, but the viral infection, we seem to get stumped. I mean, 100 years ago, what, 50 million people died? I mean, and here we are, and people saying, oh, there you go, another century, and how much progress have we made? Could you... Could you give me your views on on just managing viruses?
2: Yeah. So the the, the first thing I want to say is that I'm not a pandemic expert. Uh, <laughs> i I I try to stick to the genomics. Uh, but what is interesting is that um, we might be stumped by the virus in some sense. But what is important to remember is that. We've never had a better understanding of any of the viruses we had within such a short time. The genome of this virus was was available within weeks of it being discovered. Um, that is something that for most other viruses has taken years um, or more. Um, so we definitely have gotten better. The thing that is so tricky about viruses is that once they are around, you have typically limited time to really act on them before they get global. And especially um, with the high amounts of international travel that we currently have in our uh, rich countries, um, a virus of course um, can spread so much easier globally if that sort of air travel is is frequent, the other thing is that viruses typically give you less time to respond to them because they're so infectious. They will infect more people in a shorter amount of time. Uh, bacteria typically take a bit longer to to spread, so you you have, you have a, a longer window to act on them.
1: Thanks for joining us for part one of our conversation with you. Tune in for part two to find out how the future of healthcare can benefit genomic technology.
0: Thanks for joining us on Future Extraordinaire. With the community that we're reaching, we hope that together we will build a future that is extraordinary. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe and tell your friends about us. And please stay tuned for our next episode.